Well, it's been a joy to praise the King of Life together this day. And as we continue to reflect on that old story that we will sing for all eternity, let's turn to Galatians 4 for the reading of God's Word. Verses 12 through 20. Galatians 4, 12 to 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. That's God's word for his people today. You may be seated, and let's pray once again and ask for God's help to see our Savior and to rejoice in this old, old story. So, Father, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus, that we might have hearts that would love him more, lives that would reflect him more as we live out following him the rest of our days and rejoicing in your grace in us and through us. And so we pray this day that you would form us more and more into the image of Jesus and that for the first time, for those with ears to hear, you would transform them into Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, as we uh, jump back into our journey through Galatians this morning, let, us, or let me remind us of where we're at in Paul's letter. So we're, uh, as we said, uh, here in chapter 4, uh, we're jumping back into the middle, and on the first three chapters of Galatians, Paul has proclaimed the glories of this gospel he preached when he first arrived in Galatia. And he starts off by saying it, it wasn't his decision to become a preacher. He, he didn't grow up hoping that this would be something he did with his life. It was God's call upon him that set him apart as a gospel. And it wasn't even Paul's cleverness or other people's teaching that Paul preached, but it was God who gave him the gospel that he preached. And though the false teachers who came to Galatia after Paul had left, preaching this gospel of salvation by works which is no gospel at all. And even though they came claiming they had ties to Jerusalem and the church there and its leaders, it was actually Paul and his gospel that the Jerusalem apostles had actually put their blessing upon and sent him out. And so then starting with his real life example of he and Peter at the church potluck in Antioch in chapter two, Paul has proclaimed and defended the true gospel of justification by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And he goes on then in chapter 3 that the evidence God saves sinners by faith in Jesus and that he doesn't save people by works of the law is that the Gentiles truly became part of God's people 
for the Holy Spirit was given to them because they shared the faith of Abraham. And so they received the blessing of Abraham and Abraham's inheritance, the promise was theirs because they were now true sons of God. And that was all by faith, not by observing any Mosaic law. They were truly God's heirs because by faith alone in Jesus alone, the Holy Spirit united them into the perfect life and the atoning death and the glorious resurrection of Jesus who loved them and gave himself for them. But Paul heard the Galatians were now turning away from the gospel. They were reverting back to their old ways of idolatry in thinking God related to them like the false gods of their pagan past. So they started living like God uh, would bless them if they did and would not bless them if they didn't. They started living like God was going to relate to them based on their doing and then the fervency of their devotion to doing. But the gospel of Christ, Paul preached to them, opened a door of sonship and freedom. And they were turning around and walking back into slavery to weak and worthless things that cannot save. And so when Paul begins this letter to the Galatians, he barely gets through his opening salutation before exclaiming his bewilderment at their sudden turning away from Jesus. And we we get that sense over and over, like, this is the truth. This is what God did in you and among you. You saw it, you knew it. What are you doing? So he starts off chapter three with the loose JJ translation, you idiots. I mean, like, wake up. You're under a spell? What are you doing with your lives? And he uh, is just cannot believe how foolishly they've strayed from Jesus. But now in our verses this morning, Paul changes his tone from this bewilderment and this argument to now a passionate appeal. And he talks to them as family. He talks to them first as a brother, then a father, and finally a mother. And so look at verse 12. He says, Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. He's pleaded with them on the basis of God's calling and God's authority upon him and his authoritative message in the gospel. He's pleaded with them about salvation history, saying it's not about Moses, it's about Abraham. And he's pleaded with them using logical arguments. And now he turns the argument into a passionate appeal, pleading with them as a brother. And he does so by reminding them of the first time they met. Think back to maybe the first time you met someone you were now close to, who you might consider a brother or a sister, even though you're not biologically related. That's what Paul does. He says, brothers, remember that first time I arrived? I didn't come touting my Jewish distinctiveness. I didn't come with any air of superiority that I was one of God's chosen covenant people. No, I came and adopted your cultural customs. I lived and ate among you. I got to know your world and lived like it, like it was going to be my world. And Paul did this without compromising the gospel. He didn't compromise the gospel, but he lived with them in such a way that the gospel rang true for those with ears to hear when he did preach Jesus. 
And so when he preached Jesus, he says, remember, you didn't wrong or reject me. And that's even more amazing to Paul as he remembers the first visit because he only arrived in Galatia because of an illness that necessitated a detour there. And that illness made it difficult to, or for the Galatians to listen to Paul. Now, one reason the illness would make it difficult for them to listen to Paul is that the illness itself would make people want to steer clear so they didn't catch it, which as one who despises germs myself, I totally understand, right? He says, you did not scorn or despise me when I was sick with this illness. And that is, uh, it, it's a translation of a colloquial phrase because literally the words there are, you did not spit upon me, which I'm not that much of a germaphobe. Right? I've never, never seen someone in like, like just launched one at them to keep them away from me, right? Now, if we want to start doing that, let's do it. You know, I'll do it. I'll join you if you want to join me in my germophobiness. And, but it's not. Like, that, that's not what we do. We wash our hands and we use hand sanitizer. But in those days, you would spit at someone uh, to keep them away from you. And also, this is part of that pagan idolatry past that Paul's worried them, about them reverting to, you would spit at the person as a way to reject them, to despise them, because you were also rejecting whatever they did to make the gods do that to them. So, so you were trying to keep yourself not only healthy, but safe from bearing any kind of wrath from the false pagan god that might come at you for being anywhere near this person who must have done something to deserve what they were enduring. And so Paul says, it's amazing you listened to me because I came to you in the midst of a culture like this and you did not despise me. And another reason they would then not be, uh, or they would be tempted not to listen to Paul is because he was weak and suffering yet proclaiming a message of the power of salvation. You see that what Paul's kind of doing is, is, is you, you know what we would expect humanly speaking in a message of salvation is power and strength, not one of suffering and weakness. But even then, you did not despise me because God was at work to get Paul to Galatia through an illness. And he was at work in Paul's preaching through the Holy Spirit who gave the Galatians ears to hear and eyes to see that God saved sinners in Jesus Christ by faith. He said, I placarded Jesus before you. I billboarded him. And you saw him and believed by faith. You became sons. Are you now going to reject this? And so in spite of all the reasons why they should have rejected Paul, he says, not only did you not do me any wrong, you received me like you would have received Jesus himself. And you did everything you could to help get me better. And so he pleads with his brothers. He says that's that family generic term. It's family language. Uh, it, it also reminds them of their unity in Jesus by faith, that we're true sons of God, full heirs with a full promised inheritance coming because of Jesus through our faith in him. He says, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's how much brotherly love we had for each other. What's happened to that? He says in verse 15, what's happened to your blessedness? What he means is, what happened to the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming in power among you? You were, the, the Spirit was clearly at work. You received the Spirit. You had joy and life and peace and love. And it was clearly at work in you and through you. But now? And so Paul then turns 
and starts talking to them like a father in verse 16. He says, have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? And so Paul shifts from coming alongside them as a, as a brother to confronting them like a father. He had spiritual wisdom and authority to his pleading now, and he asks if he's now their enemy for telling them the truth. So Paul kind of pulls back the curtains on the false teachers who likely told the Galatians that Paul only told you part of the gospel. He didn't preach the whole gospel to you. He left it off because the real gospel is super hard. It would be hard for you to hear as a Gentile. So he didn't tell you that you had to obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved. That in addition to faith in Jesus, yes, we need Jesus, but you had to observe the Mosaic law to truly be part of God's people. And especially you Gentile men, you must undergo circumcision in order to be justified before God. And so Paul steps in like a father would into the middle of a crisis. And he asks a question and defines the problem. He says, you once would go above and beyond to care for me, even at great cost to yourself. You have done anything to me or for me. Now I'm your enemy? And it's a rhetorical question. He doesn't say uh, that he is their enemy, but he asks that rhetorical question so the answer lands heavy on them. I don't know if you had a father figure like this or a father like this, but did you have a dad who didn't really discuss things with you? He just kind of asked the question because he already knew the answer that you were supposed to know. And in a similar way, that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's answering the question by asking it. He says, I'm not your enemy. And if you think I am, the only reason that could cause such a drastic change in our relationship is that you've turned from the true gospel. And so you've turned from me. And you've actually turned to a false one that's no gospel to all, to, to other leaders who do not care about you one bit. And the fruit of this drastic change, we see it, is confusion and division, rather than the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul will talk about later in chapter 5, of unity and love. And so he says, let me tell you what's really going on as that spiritual father. These teachers have pitted us against each other, and you think that they're trying to help you. But what they really want is for you to tell them how great they are, for you to adore and to praise them. Do you have a, a, a someone in your maybe sphere of influence or your normal interactions in life who are always maybe coming up to you and saying things like, oh, you look nice today. Hey, I like your haircut you got. Or that's a nice new outfit. And you're like, this isn't a new outfit. And you realize they don't really want, they're not really complimenting you. What are they doing? They're waiting for you to turn around and tell them how great they are, right? You're like, you know, this, you're, you're so nice, you're so great, you're so this, you're so that. And you're like, uh, okay, what, what do you want from me, right? That's, that's what Paul's saying. But they've gotten wrapped up in it. You, you're enjoying the compliments. But he says they, they don't want you, they're not doing this for you. They're actually turning it around so that you will adore and praise them. They're hoping to make large converts of Judaism in Galatia so that their reputation as good teachers and great leaders will spread far and wide. And you can be their evidence. They just like, go look at all the converts we've made in Galatia. They're doing it for themselves. You think they're helping you to get right with God. 
They're, they're couching it in salvation language. They're preying on your, on, your, on your knowledge that you are a sinner and that you need to be made right before God. But in making much of you, they're actually shutting you out from God. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying you want to be made right with God, but these people are leading you astray. And they're not just leading you away and astray. They're going to shut you out from the only God who can save. They're doing the exact opposite that you think they're doing. And so he says, but I wasn't that way with you, remember? And I'm not that way now when we're apart. He says, now that I'm apart, I'm still loving and caring for you, praying for you, laboring with you, pleading for you. Paul had planted the church and was their spiritual father. But here he's pointing out that he's not a spiritually absent father. And we read about his trip in Acts 13 and 14 when Paul planted the church in Galatia. And he and Barnabas then went back through all these places again to check back up on them. And here this letter also proves that he's not absent. But he loves them. He cares for them. He'd do anything like any good father would for their spiritual good. And he, he pleads with them. He's my little children. He's calling them away from the danger that they're running headlong towards. He says, become like me. Not one who looks to the law for righteousness, but become like me in looking to Jesus. Become like me in knowing that life is about becoming more and more like Christ, which is by faith and not by works. And so then Paul, after talking to them like a brother and a mother, then ends by speaking like a mother to them. Look at verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. If uh, there is one thing I've learned as a man in this life, uh, it's to never compare any pain or situation that I find myself in to labor or giving birth, right? <laughs> the correction and eye rolls never come quicker than when a man says, so this is what labor is like, right? <laughs> you, you have no clue. And you're, you're absolutely right, and I'm very thankful I have no clue being in a couple of those rooms myself. When Paul says, I am again in anguish, I'm amazed that there's as many humans as there are. <laughs> I remember the doctor telling Becky uh, one time, like, you're, you're doing great. You can have more kids. After nine months of her saying, this is the last time I do this. But in that moment, holding that baby, she's like, I could do this again. I'm like, oh my goodness, I wouldn't do that ever again. <laughs> right? So then when you stub your toe and you're like, this is what labor is like, you know, you're like, you better never say that ever again. But here's Paul. Paul saying, I'm like a woman in labor. But he's an apostle, so he can get away with it, apparently, right? And he says it's like that. It's like this deep anguish that's within me, that I'm giving spiritual birth to these churches that God has called me to. I'm laboring, I'm suffering, I'm working, I'm praying, I'm pleading, I'm preaching. And I saw this, this, I saw this moment when the Holy Spirit's moving and I went away and I hear someone's taken my children away and I can't understand and I just have this deep anguish over your quick desertion of the God who called you to yourself in the grace of Jesus Christ. He says, I, 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 when I think about your turning away 
It's like I'm suffer- It's like I'm going through labor pains. It's this deep anguish that nothing can touch as he suffers like a pregnant woman about to give birth in his laboring and prayer and preaching to see them born again into newness of life in Jesus. And so like any good mother would, he's gladly labored for their spiritual lives, not complaining about it. He's happy. He longs to see more and more come to life in Jesus. But as he considers their quick desertion, he's in anguish and sorrowful over them as he suffered for their joy in Jesus. And so as they turn away, he ends by saying, I just feel lost. I don't know what to do next. I long for you to be formed into Jesus, to know Jesus, to walk with Jesus, but you're walking away, and I wish I was with you. So you wouldn't just read the truths of the word on a letter, but you would feel my great love for you as a brother and a father and a mother. And he ends by just longing for God to unite them to Jesus and for Christ to be formed in them. And so in the time we have left then, I want us to see three lessons, three lessons in these verses that guard us from turning to a gospel that's no gospel at all. Three lessons from these passionate appeal uh, from Paul. First is that it's all about Jesus always. It's all about Jesus always. Uh, In typical Pauline fashion, the first command in the letter to the Galatians comes almost at the end. Uh, Verse 12 in chapter 4 has the very first command in the entire letter. It's what Paul normally does. He lays out the truths of the gospel. He worships Jesus. He, He proclaims Jesus. He's exalting Jesus. And then it's only after he sets the foundation does he tell us what to do. It's only after setting the foundation that he begins to build upon it. But it is a weird command. It's become as I am. Become as I am. That's the first thing he tells them to do. And, and, and think about it this way. Have you ever seen those um, pictures, like side-by-side pictures of a couple when they were first married and they look nothing alike, but then 50 years of marriage later, they look exactly alike? Have you seen those kind of funny pictures? Or, or like when, a, when, when you meet someone or a younger person meets a new friend and they start dressing and talking and doing everything the other person does. Like you never liked those things, but now you do. You never talk like that, but now you do. You never want to do anything with me like that, but you got a new friend and now you want... So the Judaizers in that sense came to Galatia and wanted the Galatians to become like them in their Jewish distinctiveness. They say, you got to become like us. If you really want to become part of God's people, become like us. Start observing the Mosaic law. And here, Paul also says, become like me. So the Galatians have two different people saying, become like me. So when we face that choice, who do we follow? How do you know? How, how do we know one's a true gospel and one's a false gospel? Well, we ask which one is all about Jesus. And Paul's command is saturated with Jesus. And that's the reason he says, become like me. He doesn't just say, become like me, start liking the things I like, doing the things I like, come be tent makers with me. No, he says, become like me for, in verse 12, I also have become as 
you are. They didn't have the Mosaic law, in other words. He said, remember, I came to you as you were, as Gentiles without the law. So become like me as I became like you means become like me and not living under the law for salvation. Become like me in worshiping Jesus, exalting Jesus, having faith alone in Jesus alone. Look to Jesus. Living to the law leads to death. That's what he's been saying in chapter 3. It's the impossible mountain to climb. You can't climb it. And if you try, you're going to die. Spiritually. It's his curse. You will be cursed living under the law. Living to the law leads to death. But being crucified with Christ leads to life. So he's pointing again back to then chapter 2. Become like me. I have been crucified with Christ. It's one of those paradoxes of the Christian life, isn't it? That true life comes from death. We worshipped our risen and resurrected and reigning Savior last week because of this truth. It's by his death we have been made alive in his resurrection. And by being crucified with Christ, by faith, that's where true life is found. True life is found when it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And so the true gospel is all about Jesus. Become like me in being all about Jesus. Don't believe the false gospels that say it's all about you. That's what the Galatians, are, yeah, we're hearing and starting to believe. They had been made much of. Here, you do this. You do that. You, you, you. Paul, Paul says, become like me, and knowing it's all about Jesus, always. And always means always. In other words, the gospel isn't just the beginning of the Christian life. The gospel is also the way of the Christian life. It's not just the doorway, it's the pathway, we've said. I like how Tim Keller puts it. He says it this way. He says, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom. We are not just justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed, he means, into the image of Jesus. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier. So, when you hear calls, and you're wondering, is this a false gospel or a true gospel? Am I being led into a false gospel, or am I being led further into the true gospel? We can discern by asking, who is the solution? Who is the key? Who's the power? Who gets all the glory? Not just some of the glory. Who gets all the glory? If the answer isn't Jesus, turn around because you're being led into death. Turn around and run to the Savior for it's all about Jesus always. And then that leads to the second lesson we learn. Life. Life is all about Jesus. Now, if that sounds redundant, let me explain. Because there are times when I sense a disconnect in my life between the 
grand truths of the Bible and the grind of daily life. And I don't think I'm the only one, right, that, that knows the grand truths but can sense a disconnect that time in the grind of daily life. And I don't mean I don't believe the grand truths. I do believe them. But rather, there are times when I stop short of connecting those truths to daily life. So it's quite easy to nod my head in agreement that life is all about Jesus and say amen, only to live this afternoon like it's not. And so Paul connects these truths to life in verse 13 when he reminds them that he didn't even want to go to Galatia. He got sick and had to stop there on his way to somewhere else. And think about it if you were the Galatians. Like, uh, yes, okay, thanks. <laughs> thanks for reminding us you didn't even care about us. You didn't even want to be here. You weren't even planning to go here. You wanted to be somewhere else. But, but, but that's what he says. He's like, I, I, but why? Why does he do this? And we can get sidetracked, and many commentaries go pages about what kind of illness it was. We don't know. Was it his eyes? Is that why they wanted to gouge them out for Paul? We can't and won't ever know because Paul doesn't say. Because it's not the illness that matters. The illness doesn't matter. God's providential act and Paul getting sick and diverting him to a place that was on God's radar to save sinners through the preaching of Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, that's what matters. And so Paul is glorying in the fact that he got super sick. He's, he's glorying in God's providence in that he was going somewhere else when Galatia wasn't on his radar, and God said, nope, Galatia's on my radar, and so how am I going to get you to Galatia? I'm going to make you sick. You're going to get ill and have to go to the closest town to get better. And so Paul's glorying in the fact that he got sick so that he could preach the gospel to them. And so how often do we complain or grumble or wear our frustration on our sleeves when we hit a red light? Like in the little things of life. When, when, life, when it's just stuff's not going my way. And, and Paul's helping us connect God's sovereign will and power and his redemptive purposes with everyday life. He says, so what if rather than expressing frustration in the little interruptions of life, we instead ask God, is there something you'd have me do now for the glory of Jesus? Now, I'll be honest. If I was a better preacher, I would have figured out every answer. I don't know how you do this when you're sitting in traffic in a in I-75. Maybe you get on your hood and start preaching. Maybe that's what you're supposed to be doing. I'm not really sure. I don't have it all worked out, but I don't think that's the point. I think what, this, what Paul is trying to get us to see is that we just have the humility that life's not about me. And just be willing. If there's a moment that comes, an opportunity that arrives for you to give glory to Jesus, then take it. Now, Paul preaches the gospel when he's so sick, he risks getting spit at and rejected. But he does it because he knows life's not about him, it's all about Jesus. 
And that if he was going this way, but now he's here, God must have a plan. He's not saying, I know what it is. Maybe he is going to get spit at. There's several times when he gets beat and, you know, suffers and thrown out and has to be, uh, you know, lowered down a basket so he doesn't get stuck. Like, there's tons of times the things don't go as they did in Galatia. But that's not Paul. Paul doesn't care about that. He's just open. Whatever the Lord has, life's not about me. It's about Jesus. And so since I'm not God, I'm God's humble servant, which means every moment belongs to making much of Jesus. And so, brothers and sisters, life isn't about us. It is about Jesus. And he is reigning on high at the right hand of the Father right now, building his church among our neighbors and the nations. And so if he is the sovereign king over all, there's no such thing in life as an interruption. There's just opportunities that God is providentially creating to accomplish his purposes. And so the question becomes, are we going to be open to joining what God is doing among us and around us and be open to even using us, however he may choose, to exalt Jesus? You see, when we forget life is all about Jesus, we become prime targets of false teachers who will make much of us. That's what happened to the Galatians. You look at verses 17 and 18. That's what Paul is trying to tell them. Like, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They just want you to make much of them. It's good to be made much of. He's kind of just going back and forth. And so these false teachers came making much of them, and they were prime targets for this false teaching because they had forgotten life wasn't about them. And in our pride, we like it when people make life about us. That's real easy. Maybe not for you, but it's real easy for me. Like, it's second nature to the human heart to think this is all about me. And since the Galatians had failed to connect the grand truth that life is all about Jesus always to the grind of their daily life, they were ripe targets of false teaching. And so one way we can put this lesson to use every day is whether you do or use to-do lists or however you might need to remind yourself, somehow remind yourself every day, today is about Jesus. Put it at the top of your to-do list. Put it on your phone's lock screen. Write it on your hand. Tie something around your finger. Do, do whatever it takes to remind ourselves that today is about Jesus, that God is all about exalting his son among the nations. And so, the Spirit helps the church do that in the grind of daily life as we live out that faith in Jesus. And people will notice. People will notice you living that it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you kind of life. That's why in verse 18, Paul says, it's a good thing when people make much of you. Right? It, it, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. You're like, it sounds like Paul's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Life's not about you, but life's about you, but life's not about you, but it's okay. Life's, it's okay when people make it about you. What in the world going on? It's this. It's good to be made much of why? For what? A good purpose. Well, what's that good purpose throughout Galatia? It's Jesus. <laughs> if you're the focus 
then it's bad. If Jesus is the focus, it's good to be made much of. And again, this is something, this is a repeated theme in Galatia. Flip back a page or two, however many pages it is, to the end of Galatians 1, where Paul wraps up his story of God saving him. He's telling him their personal story, his personal story. And in verses 23 and 24, he says this. After God saved, he says, they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And then they what? And they glorified Paul? They glorified God because of me. That's when it's good to be made much of. When people start glorifying God because of his grace in you. They start seeing these changes in you. You start talking about Jesus, living for Jesus, living like Jesus, exalting Jesus, making much of Jesus whenever you can. And people are like, well, this, this person once was like this and now like, like this. Or this person's all about Jesus. And it's not always going to end well. In fact, Jesus tells us if you start doing this, you're going to be persecuted. But even then, Peter tells us on the last day, people will glorify God because of your living out Christ in front of them. So in some way, now or at the end, God's going to get the glory. And so the story of God's amazing grace to us and then in us and then through us, that's actually meant to be lived out in front of the world in such a way that people might say, wow, but not so that you can be like, yeah, I'm pretty sweet, but so that God gets the glory. And this actually is one of God's ordained means to get glory among our neighbors and the nations. When in making much of you, you turn it around so that you all are making much of God's power and grace. I had lunch uh, this week with a, uh, an, another pastor and a member of Five Points. And um, at the beginning, we just were getting to know each other. And I heard again the story of God's amazing saving grace in this man and in his family. And as he recounted for the first time for this guy, but several times for me, and I never tire of it, uh, he, th this person was just amazed at God's grace in rescuing and transferring this man out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus. And he just kept saying, wow. And, and this guy just kept pushing that wow to, to God. He's like, it's not about me. I could have never done this. I was blind and lost and hard and hard. And, and my, you know, I was, he just kept pushing the glory to God every time it came. That's what Paul is saying. It's good to be made much of when your life shines forth Jesus' glory. When your story is the story of God's amazing, saving grace. And so if it's all about Jesus, then life will be about Jesus. And we'll wake up every day saying, God, what will you have me do today to make much of Jesus? And if I'm going to miss it, wake me up. Which is really hard for me to say, I hate getting sick, right? This was, my, this was me. To, I'm like, Lord, I want to be able, I want to say, I, it's, a, it's a struggle. It is. <laughs> I do, you know? Like, but that's, that's that work. In, what would I? What, is there areas of my life that I, that I wouldn't say this to the Lord? What isn't open to him? Is it my reputation among 
my coworkers or my neighbors? What am I holding on to that is making life about me? And maybe God has to do something in his providential grace to turn you into someone who is going this way, into this humble servant that would be used however God chooses, because life is all about Jesus. Which then leads thirdly and finally to life is about being formed into Jesus then. If life's about Jesus, then he's forming us into Jesus' likeness. Life's about becoming more and more like Christ. That's why God gave us today. There, there are many reasons. We don't have time for them all. There are many reasons that there is today. But one of them is for the church to become more and more like Jesus. God is shaping us, forming us into the image of his son. That's one of the reasons why he saved us. It's what we're going to be on the last day, Paul says in Romans 8, when he glorifies us. And right now, we're in that middle where he's given us today to form us more and more into Christ-likeness. Which makes sense if everything's about Jesus. But how often am I, am I bucking God's sanctifying grace in my life? Because I like me. <laughs> I don't want to be more like Jesus. It's painful. And he's chipping away at those things of the old nature and making us more and more like Jesus. And this is why God saves, not just so that we spend eternity with him someday, but for right now to form Christ in you. I like how one commentator puts it. He says this, there are few better concise expressions that capture the essence of the Christian life than Christ is formed in you. Why does God save sinners? We've been talking about that's one of the main themes of Galatia or Galatians. How does God save sinners? It's by faith, not works of the law. That's how. But a sub-theme throughout Galatians is why? Why does God save sinners? Well, one of the reasons is to remake us into the image of his son. God is at work in his people to mold and shape them into the image of his son, Jesus, so that we will be a reflection of him. And that as we live out that reflection of Jesus before our neighbors and the nations, some will wonder why about that hope that lies within us. And then we have opportunity to walk through that door and exclaim, Jesus. And this is the daily and lifelong goal of every Christian, to be formed more into Jesus, to have Christ formed in us. That more and more, when people encounter you, they don't actually encounter you. They, in, they encounter Christ who lives in you. Because the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God. And why would we do that? Because he loved us and gave himself for us. And that word formed, it, it harkens back to Genesis. When God formed the void, the chaos, and made this world. It's this word as a deliberate, painstaking work kind of sense. It's, it's not, you know, like throwing a stick of dynamite at something kind of work. It's intricate. It's deliberate. It's painstaking, laborious work. 
which means even in these moments, when we walk through frowning providences, that God is not distant, that we can be sure that if he saved us, he has a purpose for everything, whatever he brings into our lives, to make us more like Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. And how does God do that? Well, God makes us like Jesus the same way he saves us in Jesus. It's by faith. That's why the first command doesn't come till chapter four. It's because he spends all this time giving us the foundation. And if you can't save you, you can't make you like Jesus. That's why the verb is being. Christ is formed in you. It's passive. There's not, that doesn't mean we don't have anything to do. That means it's a supernatural work, this faith in Jesus. And we, we, we uh, are transformed into the image of Jesus when we behold him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the same image that we behold. Which means you're being formed each and every day by the things you behold. Nothing is neutral in the sense of shaping us. So if you spend hours and hours reading or watching or doing, you're, it's, it's a formative activity. So what are you beholding, five points? What is in front of your eyes? What are you spending your time on? Is the word central? Is it your food? Do, do, you, do, you, do you view this as life? Like Jesus says, like, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the, the Puritans used to call this putting yourself in the way of allurement. You can't make it happen. I don't know about you, but there's days where I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like reading my Bible. If I waited till I felt like it, probably be a long time sometimes before it happened. But, but we, we, we can't make it happen. But there's things we can do that is called putting yourself in the place of allurement. So we get in the word and we behold Jesus. And we might not even know what's happening, but moment by moment, one degree of glory to the next, Paul says, painstaking, deliberate work. The Holy Spirit transforms us when we behold Jesus into his image. And so now, just as we beheld him at the start, Paul says, when I placarded Jesus before you as crucified and resurrected, and as that was the beginning of, in this world, your faith in Jesus, so now you continue to behold him by faith, in his word and by uh, his spirit. The, for, uh, the spirit will form you more and more into Jesus. What are you beholding, five points? Are, are you being shaped more and more by the world around us who does say this world is all about you? Or are you putting yourself in the places where God can shape you by his word into the image of Jesus? Because that's why he's given us today. Well, one reason why he's given us today. To make his people more like Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. And so, friend, do you have eyes to see the one who loves sinners so much that he came in suffering and weakness, 
while we were still enemies to die upon a cross for our sin. And because God raised Jesus from the dead, we can have life in him now and forever. Do you, like the Galatians once did, hear God calling you to himself in the grace of Jesus Christ? If you have ears to hear this, do not harden your heart, but come in repentance of sins and faith to Jesus. And five points, let's never forget that it is all about Jesus always. And let's labor for one another and come alongside each other for God to form us by his word and spirit more and more into the image of our Savior until the day when we see his face. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we hear this passionate appeal and know the dangers of the counterfeit gospels all around us. And we pray that you would help us so we might never turn from the true gospel to one that's no gospel at all. But would you help us by your grace to every day preach this glorious gospel to ourselves so that we might not just remember what Jesus once did but what he's doing now in us? that we would be more and more formed into the image of your Son, all to the praise of your glorious grace. And we do pray that you would help us this week as we go about our, our work and our recreation and as we live among our neighbors and the nations that they would see Jesus more and more in us? And would you give us opportunity then to push all the glory to you so that Christ might be more and more exalted, that his praise would not only just be on our lips, but on those that you have as an inheritance from Jesus from all the nations of the earth. And we know you're giving the nations to him and you're doing that work now. And so give us the grace to humbly long and then be willing to be used any way you choose so that we can make much of Jesus. And so we long uh, for the day when we see him. And until then, we pray that you would help us uh, live out the implications of the gospel by faith so that Christ might have all the glory. Do it, we pray. In us and through us, for your glory, we ask. Amen.